We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. The headline in the Hamilton Spectator and the Toronto Star, Ontario housing starts are at a 30-year high. But here's why no one is popping champagne. Because it's nowhere near enough, because for almost as much time, we haven't been building enough. So even though they're at an all-time high, well, you have to keep doing that for a few more years. And right now, or earlier today, um, the Prime Minister came out and spoke in front of uh, his caucus, which is meeting in London, and 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 we're hearing words that we've never heard before, uh, and it's 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 something to hear, <laughs> and I don't know what to believe. Uh, let's bring in Murtaza Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is here now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for asking. We aren't building enough houses, says the Prime Minister. Were you surprised to hear that language coming from him? Yeah, I am, um, because I'm not surprised at the words. I'm just surprised at the timing of it. We were not building enough housing when he became a Prime Minister, and then he remained a Prime Minister for his first tenure and second tenure, and these words didn't come out of it. And now that everybody else is telling it, and suddenly the Liberals have woken up to the reality that we have not built enough housing. And not since they became the Prime Minister, it's a pent-up demand for housing that has continued since 1970s um, because we have not been building enough homes. In fact, people are looking at the fact that they say, oh, we are building more homes now than before. These are the people whose databases start in 1990. They don't have access to previous hmm. data. So I can tell you right now with great degree of certainty that we were building more homes in 1975 than we are building today. In fact, we were building more homes in 1988-89 than we are building today. It's just that everybody has got these shortened memories or their database don't go back enough. And then we were building more homes in 1970s. Our population was 20, 22 million. And now we are building fewer than those homes that we were building in the 1970s, and our population is in excess of 40 million. So you can just imagine that even with this increase in construction, this construction increase is still lower than what we were doing in the 70s, but we are doing it for a much larger, almost twice as large a population. So yes, if liberals have woken up to this, good for them. Um, It's 10 years too late, but um, at least they have acknowledged it. I mean, this is something, you know, Johnny come lately, but at least we are there now. The question is, what can they do about it? And I think they cannot do much about it because they've lost a lot of precious time. And given the the interest rate regimes right now, given the disruptions to supply chains, given that we don't have enough labor force, um, whatever we need to build, land, labor, and capital is in short supply. And finally, we have the political will because it wasn't the earlier in short supply. It was missing completely. Uh, so therefore, some ingredients are there, some are not there. But if you are a homeowner, uh, rest assured, your property values will be increasing. So, um, uh, I, I understand, and I think we've had this discussion before, Murtaza, that you know, 30 years ago, urban sprawl perhaps was getting out of hand and need to be reined in. Uh, but then it seemed to move from that extreme to don't build anything. And oh. for some reason, we got into this headspace that if we build or we build out, that it is bad for the environment. So all of a sudden, it became an environmental issue on the left that we can't build, it's bad, it it leaves a big footprint, what have you. How do you balance that? Well, let's just acknowledge the fact that human beings are bad for the environment. (laughs) No, that's that's an honest truth. Human beings are bad. Um, It was bad for the environment when someone built a house on a mountain 
and it was bad for the environment when that person became an environmentalist and tried other people's block other people's from building their house on the, on the mountain. The fact is that if you have a house in a, in, in downtown Toronto in in the annex, it was bad for the environment some 200 years ago when that house was built because it was green space then. Right? So it's not that every house that you see was built on some green space at some point in time. And given that our population has been growing, we will be building. So this notion of uh, we can't build on green space and that's going to be by default sprawl is kind of misleading because that's all we did in the past several hundred years, if not more. The question is, can we do it better? And the answer is yes. We should not strive to sprawl by default. We should strive to build more sensibly. And wherever it's possible, densify. But when it can't, then you have a big problem. The densification is easier said than done. It's like as easy. You know, when people say there's so much developable land already existing, why don't we build there? It's like me telling students, there's so many books in the library, why don't you go and read them? So <laughs> there are books in the library. It doesn't mean that anybody's going to go and study them. And just because you see a parcel of land doesn't mean it's developable of the type of housing that people want to buy and the prices that people can afford. So this humongous disconnect between land economics and people's perception of it, and especially political leaders and the council, uh, councillors and, and, uh, and many politicians on the left, they don't seem to understand that just looking at a parcel doesn't mean that it can be developed. That's not good enough because then I would be justified in, in, in thinking that because there are books in library, I would keep wondering why people are not smarter. So the question is, is the land developable? Is it developable for the type of um, properties that that the market demands? And when it's built, can people afford to buy them? And all of these questions are easier to ask and difficult to answer. If you look at the stats, people are saying we are building much more housing now than before. The reality is they're building condominiums. If you just hmm. look into detail and you say, okay, what kind of housing are we building? You're building single detached homes, family-oriented housing. That's the type of housing that has become so expensive. But the answer is, since 2005-06, the number of housing starts, the number of new housing, which is single detached housing, that has been on a decline. And what is hidden in this overall increase in housing starts is the fact that we are mostly building apartments or, or, or condominiums. Hmm. So if you're worried about providing affordable, family-oriented, ground-oriented housing, that doesn't exist. And therefore, I am also of the view that we should be building more single detached row houses. But they, if you look at those numbers, they have not moved since 1955. The supply of semi-detached and the supply of row houses is at the same level today as it was in 1955, 1975, 1985, and, and 2003. What has happened is that apartments and condominiums have taken off. Single detached homes have, have, have a nosedive. And, and families are in the middle. They want to buy homes. They want to be in homes where their kids can play in the backyard. That housing is not being built. What we mm. are doing is erecting towers wherever we can find the space. Murtaza Hader with us, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Murtaza, hopefully the politicians are listening. We'll chat again. Thank you so much for the time and insight. Be well. You too. Thank you kindly. Talked about this, and, and certainly um, whether it's artificial intelligence or deep fakes, uh, obviously we seem to be running behind technology when it comes to uh, even the security of it or managing it or even understanding what it is or where it's going. And we've certainly talked about deep fakes before where, where, where basically video, uh, voice, what have you, is manipulated 
and then uh, artificial uh, announcements, messages, whatever are are developed, are produced out of that, and we see people that would normally probably wouldn't comment on things commenting on things that are quite out of character. Under further examination, uh, we see it's a deep fake video. Where does this go? Because we know that technology is only getting better and better every day, and if you've got to kind of look very closely to see if something's fake at this point, how long before you can't tell at all? Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvork and senior fellow. Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age and is here now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott, and I hope you are too. So I guess one good thing about all of this, Jeff, is we are talking about it. We're actually seeing news stories on it. I saw a a story on CTV the other night where uh, the host actually played a video of himself who had been changed through AI. So uh, is that really the only way to combat this at this point? Well, it's interesting to me because somebody's making a lot of money off of this by having people click on the the site, which basically says that this person that reads the news is actually trying to sell you something. And and I guess there are some people who are unfamiliar with with this scam and they click on it. And that's the way the data is gathered by these these malcontents, these no good people. And uh, according to one source, Canadians have lost about half a billion dollars last year to these scam artists. Um, And it seems to me that there's a couple of ways to proceed. One is for the public to pay closer attention to these these videos, uh, which is always going to be a bit of a problem since public attention is pretty pretty scant uh, at the best of times. The other thing is for... Uh, the government to uh, unleash the fraud squad uh, by police forces on these people mm. and go and try and stop them and collect the money and and uh, put a few of them in jail. And that would uh, discourage this to a certain extent or to have these media organizations who feel that their uh, their their workers, their talent has been defamed by these things. Uh, I saw one where Omar Sachadina from CTV was alleged to be uh, selling uh, crypto coins, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous and clearly untrue. Uh, but if CTV wanted to unleash its lawyers on these people, uh, I think that would be a good way to, de- to deal with some of them and would send a pretty strong message. You know, uh, what are you concerned about more here, Jeff? Uh, The ability to scam, because obviously that opens the door for um, a myriad of scams, uh, which we all know, and whether it's Internet, telephone, door knockers, what have you. Or is it that this also can be used to just spread simply inaccurate or, or wrong information? Well, I think that's it's the second of those that that I'm concerned with. I mean, there will always be scam artists among us uh, working against the the good of the of the public. I'm a little concerned about how in a coming election season in Canada and certainly in the U.S., whether messages will be put out there that claim to be coming from political parties or politicians that are clearly untrue. And the spreading of uh, disinformation is is really pernicious. Um, We saw that the governor of Florida, DeSantos, is uh, accused of something through one of these scams. 
Um, and it's always about planting the seed of doubt inside yeah. people's minds, even if they think, well, this possibly can't be true. And then on second thought, they say, well, what if it is? And I think that's the danger is that a lot of our politicians, our institutions, whether it's government or universities or media, are called into question in a dubious sort of way. There's still probably about 10% of the population that's going to say, yeah, but what if it's true? And that to me is the bigger danger, that we tend to undermine our own values and our own institutions by allowing these things to keep going. We're going to get to a point, or are we, Jeff, where nobody's going to believe anything? Well, I think that's that's the issue. And, and I think that one of the things that I've tried to teach my students while I was still at U of T was to say, let's do some forensic editing here. Let's look at what's being said and figure out ways in which we can drill down a little bit to question the veracity of these things. And I think that when I asked my students to do this, they actually were pretty pretty good at it. Uh, and it's not to turn them into a bunch of raving cynics, as the rest of us have become, but it's just simply <laughs> to give to give them some ammunition to deal with what is clearly a kind of growing social problem. All right. Can't let you go without asking you about uh, Bill C-18 and the, the whole thing about getting uh, uh, social media to pay for content that it is posting. Of course, Meta reacted uh, by saying, OK, we just won't use it anymore. Where is this whole discussion going? Are we on hold? Are we on pause? What's happening? I think it's slowly coming to a resolution. Uh, the government has said that uh, uh, discussions are starting up with Google uh, and apparently uh, in the near future with Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook. Um, they'll come to a, they'll come to a solution at some point. What's interesting to me is how people have decided. You know what? Maybe we can live without Meta for a while. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe we can just go to the websites of global and and CTV and CBC and get the news right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, and people are doing that, which in fact is a healthier approach to consuming media than allowing large media companies to do it for us. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Do you remember the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Um, well, is it delayed? Is it going through? Will it ever have anything going through it? Uh, as, um, yeah, we bought it, <laughs> but are we going to use it? Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Sounds like uh, Stellantis and Volkswagen and batteries. Do you think we'll ever get our money back? <laughs> yeah, or even an assembly plant, or even an assembly plant to build the cars more than just the battery. But I digress. Uh, do, have Canadians forgotten about the Trans Mountain Pipeline? I think they have, but they certainly can't ignore the bill. Uh, it's already thirty billion bucks, thirty billion bucks out of your pocket and mine that uh, hopefully be recovered someday, but uh, wouldn't have uh, necessarily been. Uh, something that the public would have had to lay out were it not for the fact that we have a, a regime in Ottawa that tolerates uh, green miscreancy that goes out and blocks pipelines. And as a result, uh, 
prevents uh, not only oil from getting to markets, all other markets, but natural gas and liquid natural gas in particular. So other countries like the United States, Qatar, Australia are only too happy to take 150 billion bucks away in potential revenues that uh, an economic activity that Canada has foregone because of its, uh, its woke ideology. It's hurting you. And then when you have uh, you know, no services. Hospitals are at the max. Uh, when your, uh, you know, your education system is is under strain. When all of our social programs are in trouble. When our debt is going through the roof, and when inflation continues to take a, you know, to to gnaw away at your ability to make ends meet. Maybe we should think a little bit more about why we allow governments and their friends and green grifters to uh, to block energy resources in this country, the resources the rest of the world wants. Japan came to our door, its prime minister. The German chancellor was here last year, and we said there's no business case. At least our prime minister said that. So I'm not surprised. People may have forgotten Trans Mountain Pipeline, but you need to build it because uh, the company that was building it was going to sue our our backside. Uh, We had promised that, and and they'd gone through the hoops to get all of the approvals. They were going to do it on their dime. We have now had to take it over on our dime. Uh, unfortunately, um, just makes a bad situation worse. Uh, by the way, I, I pull no punches here. If I were to do anything, I would simply say Canadians should be paying for this. This should be the BC government and all the green organizations out there that have blocked this pipeline and done their very best to create the situation that we find today. They're the ones that should be built. And we could start by restoring audits on those so-called charities because they're not charities. These are uh, political lobbyists uh, who've done a lot of vandalism to this country. Why buy it if you're not going to build it? Uh, because you have to, uh, because it's mostly built, or laws that was built, um, and we also. So why not? To, why not, Dad? Why not just secretly, fee, uh, you know, uh, finish it, and you know, hopefully the uh, you know the the green people won't won't notice it. I mean, well, like no, no, you no. know, they've been doing this for a while. So why haven't they just got it done? And then because you know, I mean, the the whole thing about buying it and such, they sort of had an out there. So now that it's not, you're spending the money and nothing's getting done. <laughs> that draws attention to things. Why didn't they just do it? Well, because they tolerated it. Because he said they will bend over backwards for every Tom, Dick, and Harry that's out there that wants to oppose it. And make no mistake, these green organizations led by Suzuki Foundation, Sierra Club, uh, 360, all of these ones that Stefan Guibault loves, all these organizations uh, you know, spend a considerable amount of their time engaging what's called lawfare. And Canada's extraordinarily sensitive to this kind of thing. I mean, the Trans Mountain Pipeline had to go back two or three times before the judges finally said, yeah, you can do this. Uh, but they will find any way in which they can to stop this, and they will use any regulatory tool uh, or political uh, you know, game to stop this. And as a result, you and I are on the hook for $30 billion bucks. It'll, it'll likely be $40 billion by the time it's all said and done, when apparently this is supposed to be finished sometime next year, which the private sector would have finished a couple of years ago had it not been for a federal liberal government, their friends in the NDP and the provincial NDP government, uh, you know, uh, doing everything they could to block this. And that you, you and I are paying for this. So anybody who thinks for a moment that this is something you can ignore, think about it next time your taxes go up. Think about it next time your interest rates go up. Think about it next time the cost of food and energy goes up. It's all related, Scott. I know people think I'm a broken record and I'm upset. No, I'm upset at the ignorance of people not understanding that they are giving rise to a group of people, cultists in this country, who are actually making life a lot more difficult for everyone, not just the oil industry and those wanting to get products to market, but ultimately for themselves. It goes around, comes around. It's extremism gone mad. Um, To quote the headline from the Calgary Herald, will this thing ever get built? Will the ribbon ever be cut? Will anything ever go through it? 
Uh, it will, uh, but it'll take a new government federally. It'll take a new government that's basically going to say, to hell with this. We're not putting up with this crap anymore. Uh, get out of the way. And if you're going to get in the way, so we'll set these aside, put the mess, grow, whatever we want to do. We're going to build pipelines in this country. We have to. Because if we don't, Russia is going to simply beat us to the punch or Qatar or Australia or some of our friends at uh, <laughs> Venezuela and Iran. You want those folks calling the shots? Because as far as I know, India, China, the big consumers in the world don't care if Canada wants to sell it or not. They'll just get it from someone else. The question is, do we want to do it the right way and sell it to them? Because they're asking first. They're giving us first threat of refusal. We want to continue to be Pollyannish about this and uh, international girl guides and international boy scouts. That's fine. Uh, but uh, wave goodbye your standard of living. And I mean that. When you think your lifestyle is diminishing by voting and bringing in these people who bend over backwards for a group of 10% of folks out there who've got nothing better to do but basically say the world is coming to an end because Canada produces oil, it's, it's, it's madness gone wild and it's ignorance enveloping this unfortunate madness. Do you think, Dan, as a former Liberal MP, as you see the Prime Minister in trouble with housing or affordability or all these other issues that are not on his, uh, certainly not on his uh, list of things to do, do you think Do you think this is changing the attitude? Do you think people are looking at this differently? I'm even getting the feeling over the carbon tax where, you know, people want to help, but they're not sure this is the way to do it. Are, are, are all these other issues making them question this sort of thing? Yeah. Look, I just finished uh, two interviews today, NTV and Saltwater Network in Atlanta, Canada. The people most affected who have the least amount of uh, financial ability to weather this kind of stuff are the ones that are being hardest hit. And that, you know, I'm not picking regions or provinces. We're all feeling this. And a lot of it is totally unnecessary. And I can tell you that as a liberal of 18 years and many years before that in the trenches, my brand of liberal government would never have tolerated this. We would have got pipelines built. We would have made accommodations to ensure we could set these things aside as far as disputes are concerned. But as Jean Cretzen used to say many years ago, the proof is the proof is the proof. People laughed at that. He would say the same thing with why would you want to invest $32 billion bucks in, uh, in electric batteries that China is going to basically eat your lunch on very shortly by flooding the world with cheap batteries that are going to obviate and obviously take away from our ability to, uh, uh, to recover any of that $30 billion bucks we're putting out either on pipelines or on electric batteries. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Remember that? Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know that uh, the Prime Minister was in India with the G20 summit and his entourage, uh, but then they got to stay an extra few days uh, because the Prime Minister's entourage and uh, all were stranded due to a broken aeroplane for a couple of days, a uh, jet airliner. Two military aircraft were deployed as backup if the technician who was flying commercial could not resolve the issue with the original plane and the piece that he brought. Are these all the more reasons why we should be focusing a little bit more on our military? Terry, who we uh, we charge with driving, flying the prime minister around. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto. And here now, Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, like many prime ministers in the past, uh, military spending not necessarily a priority. That's uh, certainly changing now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and such. Uh, but now we've seen the prime minister stranded as a result of, uh, of a, um, a malfunction in the plane and such, waiting for repair. Does this prove that we need to reexamine our priorities when it comes to military spending? Can we link the two? Well, it is nicely symbolic of the fact that much of our military gear is in a state of disrepair. It's uh, it's it's we we have uh, we have pilots flying aircraft that are older than they are, and that uh, that simply shouldn't happen. It doesn't happen in a lot of NATO countries, but it it's routine here. Um, I suppose it could have been worse from the prime minister's standpoint. At least he didn't try to dress up in native garb this time. Mm. But uh, still, it's uh, it's a poke in the eye to uh, to the prime minister and the government that uh, that military spending is not what it should be, and it underlines, I think, our general international irrelevance, which was amply on display at the G20. Um, you know, it's one thing to ride on the wings of America when it comes to our security and defense. But this is what sort of uh, how does the world or do they care when all of a sudden the prime minister can't even fly home? Uh, they do care because, as I said earlier, it is uh, symbolic. It's symbolic of the fact that our, our military is is not being kept up to date. Its uh, its equipment is not kept in good repair. It makes us look foolish in the in the eyes of both our allies and our adversaries. What about the extra cost involved in backing all of this up? There were two military aircraft that were deployed uh, or could have been deployed if uh, the piece didn't work. Uh, what about the contingency plans? I mean, and the costs involved there. Yeah, well, the uh, contingency plans are fine, but uh, uh, ideally the contingencies for which they're in place are, are rare events. Uh, this one was, was, I suppose, rare enough, but it was, uh, it was very visible. And the, uh, the cost that is required to back these things up properly is, I think, a, not only a wise but a necessary yeah. investment if we're to avoid such embarrassments in future. Uh, it's interesting, too, when we talk about Russia and they are trying to, uh, I guess, woo uh, North Korea into giving them military equipment or ammunition or such. And I remember saying yesterday, how archaic can this stuff be? It certainly can't be that advanced. But then, you know, we talk about that. But when we look in the mirror with our own Canadian military, we don't we, we don't draw the same conclusion. No, we don't. Uh, and the fact is, you 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 can, as the Russians are doing, wage a war largely with fairly low tech, obsolete equipment. The stuff they're getting from North Korea, or are likely to get from North Korea, isn't isn't exactly state of the art, uh, but it uh, it's good enough for uh, for the purpose at hand. Uh, we uh, we are uh, are regrettably uh, chronically indifferent to the the state of our military readiness. And uh, and every now and then, uh, some event comes along like this that dramatizes that fact. 
Uh, I've been told by military, or sorry, by aviation experts that as long as a plane is maintained and you've got the pieces and the parts, they can fly for a tremendous long time. But I'm not sure, for example, if I was flying back from Florida and somebody said the plane was grounded because there was a piece missing, if I'd feel comfortable getting on the, the same plane again 24 hours later. Um, is there any reason to be concerned here for security or safety reasons? Uh, yeah. I mean, normal wear and tear on aircraft is one thing. Uh, missing parts uh, is uh, is quite another, and, uh, and 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 quite alarming. It does point to a serious gap in the maintenance of this aircraft that uh, that a missing part was uh, not discovered in a timely manner. Where do you think this goes from here, Jack? Uh, you know, it was seemed a week ago they were talking about a new residence at Twenty Four Sussex. Would that will that now change to a new a new airplane for our elected officials? Uh, well, it uh, it might, and arguably it should. I mean, this this uh, this is, uh, as I said, symbolic. The uh, the aircraft that uh, that a head of government flies around in should be adequately maintained and not break down in such an embarrassing uh, fashion. The fact that this has been such a public debacle may just focus the minds of government officials and of the public on the need to uh, to do better. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, uh, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. You might remember the name SNC-Lavalin, or maybe you don't, or maybe it won't matter because it's going to be changed anyway. Uh, remember the SNC-Lavalin affair with Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and, and Jane Philpott and that whole scenario uh, in and around uh, 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 a, an agreement which was, uh, I guess, Jody Wilson-Raybould thought wasn't a good idea and ended up going through and her departure and such. Now we're hearing that SNC-Lavalin is going to rebrand and change its name. Where did this come from? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Glad to be with you. Uh, have you heard rumblings of this, Marvin? Are you surprised? Well, I am surprised. I had not heard that they were considering this. But uh, on the other hand, it, it isn't completely outside the realm of possibility. Let me just put that in context for you. So most businesses spend a lifetime trying to build their brand. And when they do this well, we say that the company has goodwill attached to it. So a great example, Twitter. Twitter had been around for a number of years. We actually use it as a verb to tweet. And, and this is just what you desire as a company. So if a company comes along and says, we're going to change our name, that probably means they feel that not only is there no or not much goodwill attached to their name, but maybe there's ill will attached to their name. And this would be the case with SNC-Lavalin. Not so much here in Canada, but certainly on the international stage. So at the heart of that scandal that you were talking about was actually allegations in a country that we might know called Libya, that SNC-Lavalin, to, to win a contract, had engaged in bribing various government officials. And because they had bribed these government officials in Libya, the question then became, well, should this affect their ability to bid on government contracts here in Canada? And that's what led to the Canadian version of this. But internationally, people remember these kinds of stories. And especially as you look at Africa, Africa is a continent that is doing a lot of development work, a lot of construction 
construction work that SNC-Lavalin would like to bid on, and so they decided to change the name. Now, I'm surprised they have scrapped the entire name. For instance, I wouldn't have shocked me if they had said SNC-Thompson, let's say, keep a part of the name, but add some new part to try to say they're turning over a new leaf. Instead, the name is Atkins Realis. Now, Atkins is actually the name of a company they purchased, an engineering company they purchased in England about three years ago, maybe just before COVID. Uh, they took that name and retired it at the time and put the SNC name on, but now they've dug it out and said, we're going to do this. And then Realis is kind of a made-up word, uh, made up to sound like the word realize, to realize something, to finish something, to undertake something. But also it's a, a sort of nod to its head off which is in Montreal, uh, take the real part of Montreal, add IS to it, and you get the name. So I think the idea here is this name doesn't have any big goodwill attached to it, but it also doesn't have ill will, and now they hope they can turn over a new leaf and build a new image for the company. Does this just draw more attention to the things that they want to <laughs> put in the distance? I mean, at the end of the day, is it about the brand or the behavior? Well, it really is about the behavior. So, again, I can give a company a new name, and if the, if you really do then walk a new walk and behave differently, then that new name can take on all kinds of good things. Now, believe it or not, Scott, this happens, I wouldn't say every day, but we've already seen it happen once in 2023. There was a Swiss banking company that you may have heard of called Credit Suisse. And at one point this year, uh, they ran into a whole lot of trouble. And so something called the Union. Union Bank of Switzerland, nobody knows it as that, it's shortened up as UBS, UBS bought Credit Suisse and they made that name completely disappear. For 10 years, Credit Suisse was known as the bank that couldn't shoot straight, it kept shooting itself in the foot, for lack of a better term, with all the mistakes it's made, and so they just made that all disappear, and the hope is that although you don't know what UBS is, you don't have that baggage of Credit Suisse, and I think to some extent they've been successful because that new company has been chugging along and nobody even talks about the past anymore. Is this, can this backfire? I mean, is this the admission of a bad brand and all you're trying to do now is pull the wool over everybody's eyes and this is just trickery? Well, is, and anybody who does this sort of engineering work, do they not know who SNC-Lavalin is? Well, they do. Now, again, let's understand that no one has actually ever claimed that they build bad bridges or bad airports or that they have mm -hmm. faulty designs. This was all about trying to win a contract. And, and there's a new CEO who says this behavior is not going to be tolerated here. And so the new name is a symbol of turning over that new leaf. And I think, again, because SNC does have a history of doing good things, for instance, in the last year, they've done more than $8 billion worth of construction projects in just the last year. They certainly are not a company on death's door. They, they are profitable. They are succeeding. But they really felt that as they were bidding on contracts, especially in the developing world, that that stench, if you will, of that bribery was still hanging around them, and this would give them that clean slate. Obviously, again, the name is not enough. It is actually how you walk that makes the difference. It's not how you talk, so they'd better back it up with good actions. In order, uh, in order to do this, because it's not a, you know, it's a big deal to change the brand or the name of a company like this, must it have been slowing them down? 
Well, you wonder if it had been coming up in conversation. So in other words, if I was going to investigate a project, and I'll just make up a country here, say India, or I'm looking at a project in in um, Indonesia, and when I'm trying to bid on it and what have you, people say, by the way, whatever happened in Libya, whatever happened with, oh, dear God, you know, let's not mm-hmm. keep talking about that. So maybe, again, the hope is by having this new name, they can shut some of that conversation down. I, I don't know if it's real, but to your first part of this point, it is not an inexpensive proposition. This will cost them millions of dollars to remove the old name, shred the old letterhead, reprint mm-hmm. all the business cards. It is not an inexpensive process, but they must feel that the benefit outweighs the cost. Uh, with, and as you said, you got to back it up by, by changes uh, as well as just the name. Right. Because the brand has changed and the extent you must go to to do that, are, to, are we to assume that the attitude has changed in, in the head office as well? Well, I'm going to say yes. We believe that. We believe there's a new CEO. He's actually apologized for some past mistakes the company made. Those people who had been leading the company when those bad things were done are all gone now. They've all gone. They've all thrown themselves on their sword, and they've all gone. Uh, And SNC-Lavalin has accepted the various penalties that have been set against them. And now this new CEO, new broom sweeps clean. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt until he shows that I shouldn't. And, And so far, he's been doing a good job. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, changing its public image and its name, SNC-Lavalin, is rebranding. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now that uh, Abacus says the conservatives have a 14-point lead over the liberals, now we're talking housing. Uh, Despite that cabinet shuffle that happened a while ago and now a liberal caucus convention in London. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert. She is here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Alyssa, I never remember the Prime Minister ever saying anything like that. Can you spin this on a dime and pretend like the last eight years have not even happened? Yeah. (laughs) Can you? Yes. Is it effective? That remains to be seen. I mean, you know... Those recent polls, I think, were a big wake-up call. I think that you always think that, you know, perhaps they're a little bit ahead and that's kind of normal. After so many years in power, people want change. And then you see this 14-point gap, and that's big. And that's when the war room gets together and says, okay, we're kind of screwed at this moment. What are we going to do to change this around? Even though... An election is two long years away. So from what I understand, there are some people who say, let's go heavy, let's go hard against Polyev. Um, And there's other people who would say, you know, it's still a long time away. People can still shoot themselves in the foot. So it's very, very interesting because right now the liberals are truly in reactive mode, right? They're in reactive mode to the recent polling results. And they're in reactive mode to, you know, how Polyev's reputation is, is currently on the rise. Uh, it seems that, um, uh, you know, that for example, they've said, well, we're not communicating ourselves clearly. We're not telling the people how great we are, what everything we've done. Now, you can say a lot of things about Justin Trudeau, but one thing he is extremely good at, it's his charismatic speeches and his communication skills. So I'm not sure how you can blame communication. It's not the communication. It's the message. 
people aren't buying into it anymore. Uh, and and it's, so I've heard that excuse and that they're not spending enough time picking on Pierre Polyev, which I'm not sure that's the answer. I believe that's missing the boat. This is not about likability. This is about policy that's failing, and now it's evident to everybody, and you can't just put lipstick on a pig here. Well, you know, I think I would just amend what you said a little bit, Scott. I would say that it's not the communicator. It's, you know, it's not the messenger. It's the message. So, you know, yeah, uh, Trudeau absolutely does have great oratory skills. I would say he's not as good as his father was, but I would say that he does have good oratory skills. But, you know, he doesn't come up with what to say. Um, Well, not all the time anyways, but he does, you know, it's his team that comes up with the narrative and it's his team that comes up with with those uh, messages to say. So, you know, have the liberal have the liberals been sort of of sitting on their laurels a little bit and feeling they don't have to tackle the big issues because the conservatives were always self imploding over the past number of years and it never really mattered. And it kind of just looked like easy street and they have this deal with the NDP. And then suddenly, suddenly and, and to your point, you say, well, you know, eight years later um it's like one of those netflix shows that shows you the before and then exactly sort of a a real big time shift and that's where we're at right now and i have to say that if you sort of parse um his 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 speech that we just listened to apart you know it's very interesting when you when you sort of um pick that apart and you you know normally when trudeau speaks oh i watched the whole thing Alyssa. Yeah, on how his sleeves were his sleeves were he's excited his sleeves were rolled up all slow that slow and sobering yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The sleeves are rolled up. You hear a lot of the same taglines that he's been saying over and over and over again. And let's be honest, economic issues are not the man's strong suit. It's saving the planet, saving Canadians, uh, saving your abortion rights, protecting us from big bad Americans and handguns and all that crap. And nothing's being managed. And now that is plainly obvious. So how can somebody who's out to lunch on all of those and, and you know, you were talking about the the messenger, the message, whatever. If you're that great a politician, and he is, he should be thinking on his feet and saying just the right things. But he can't because he's completely out of touch. No? Well, you know, I think that that might be part of it. I mean, how can you not drive up and down the street of any city and see what gas prices are? How can you not be going into a grocery store and see what you paid $5 is now eight fifty? So how can you not? You know, life is getting more and more expensive for Canadians and Canadians are hurting and they're talking about it. I mean, listen to any hour or two of talk radio, including you, Scott, you know, or anywhere across this country where there's a call in and Canadians will tell you exactly how they feel if you're not listening. I also think this is about starting to read the room. You just can't. I mean, Scott, you and I have said this over and over again. You know, we think that government is there to help Canadians. I think that government, no matter what party stripe you are, is there so you get in for the next in for the next term. I think it's I think that that is really all what it boils down to. And everything that you're doing is to save the base, is to keep your lead and to keep people just happy enough so that they vote you in in the next time. Well, happy enough is not working for the liberals right now. And they've got to change strategy. So I think there's one or two ways of doing that. A, change the narrative. You've got two years to do it. It's a long time. People's memories are short, Scott. They're very short. You and I both know that. 
And maybe you don't want to be doing all the dirty work. Maybe you want to co-opt interest groups who can sort of carry the the narrative or carry that mantle for you for some of those narratives that you don't necessarily want to dig into, but it comes, it sounds better coming from a third party. And that is what I think we're going to see more of because this is what we're seeing now with the LBGTQ um, issues. It's not necessarily coming from the government about, you know, blaming the conservatives. It's coming from other groups. So I think that that strategy is going to start to permeate and roll out a little bit more over the next 18 months. When you hear the liberals complaining about LGBTQ uh, community issues, when you hear them talking about the United States, when you see them bringing up abortion issues, they are scared. These are the, these are arrows they've had in uh, in their backpack for decades, and they always pull them out when they're in trouble. It's not about telling us what they can do for us. It's about you don't want that big bad guy over there, as if they're the only party that can govern the country, and that we don't regularly go left, right. Left, right. But Scott, left, it right. works. I mean, you can only have to look at South. Oh, it's Twitter worked for the left. And, it's worked and for the, the reason le- why Trump is still in power. You know, before in the elections in Israel, it seemed that Netanyahu was not going to win. And then he came out with a tactic. And well, well, if you think that this party is going to protect you from our neighbors, not all of whom like us, we might be in trouble. And he gets elected back in. Scott, politics is a very, very strange beast, and it makes for very, very strange bedfellows. So while you think that the scare tactics make no sense now, they were used in the nth hour. It can still work. However, once you don't like somebody, I think that's hard to change. And I think that's where the public is with our prime minister. No. Do you know what's harder to change? It's harder to change when you put lipstick on a pig. So, for example, you (laughs) use that to talk about issues. And when you try and gussy up somebody who normally wasn't, you know, portrayed as one thing and now is trying to be portrayed as something else. Because I'll tell you something, Scott, you can do all the beautification ads and you can have all the ads of your wife and your second cousin twice removed telling people how great you are. But at the end of the day, when you're asked those hard questions, hard questions the conservatives haven't been able to answer with any of their candidates, that's where the rubber hits the road because people don't change. And the one thing that people know about Trudeau, I'm not defending either one, Scott, but the one thing they know about Trudeau is that they know what they're going to get for better or for worse. Wow. All right. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Always fun. And we'll chat again. You scared me with that long pause at the end, Scott. But yes, thank you for having me. Uh, you know on. what? I, 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 I totally I totally respect what you have to say, but I ain't buying any of it. And I don't think Canadians okay. are well, either. That's why you have you me know, on. That's it. <laughs> Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Thank you, Alyssa, as always. Have a great day. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've talked a lot about uh, tent encampments. We've talked a lot about the Hats Tiny Cabins. And, of course, the meeting that was the other night and was canceled because uh, uh, people were concerned about safety and such. Uh, Where does this go from here? We've, you know, to her credit, the mayor has come on. Um, uh, when we have asked and, and, and tried to to offer some guidance and, and where they are going, uh, the HATS people haven't been so quick to come on and uh, at this point are not. And we have asked them all to 
come forward and tell us what the heck's going on here. Let's bring in Jason Farr, former counselor for uh, Ward 2 in the city of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, not too bad. Your producer, Ben's messed up my uh, algorithm on my music app today. I went and called up Starship, Scott. And now it's nothing but hair bands, buddy. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It's just, trying you know, to that's make just... good by playing sock, uh, uh, Flock of Seagulls, but it's that's it. Help. You're just yeah, collateral yeah. damage, Jason. You're just collateral damage here. So, uh, obviously, you are a counselor and such. Step yes. back. What are your thoughts on where you see the city, where it is right now? Right now, the hats deal is a boondoggle, and it was right from the beginning. As soon as, in my opinion, they decided to make this announcement uh, in a hasty manner, uh, you know, you just take a look at the Greenbelt argument that the municipality has uh, towards Ford and his government right now and, and put it on the local hacks plan and the way that's played out. It's a mirror image. The complaint would be you you uh, uh, pass this thing within seven days. There's absolutely no chance for public consultation. And then you say, oh, no, we always said we were going to uh, consult the public, but you do it after a vote by council to approve it. And so naturally, North Enders are going to get mobilized, number one, and boy, have they in a big way. And I've helped in the early going, and I continue to help in that capacity. But they also are going to be upset. Why wouldn't you be? They're putting a shanty town. Unfortunately, there are impacts when you do this. Nobody disapproves of the concept. It's the location. And they're putting it on one of their coveted park uh, at uh, gateways. And so now they're scratching their heads wondering why they've heard a bit of noise at one meeting, which for the most part has been very peaceful. And so far they haven't proven any kinds of uh, violence. Nobody's pressed any charges. Uh, I, it's, it's perplexing to a lot of folks that live there. And they're, they're, everything that's happened to date has been a boondoggle by both the city and by hats. And it's only increase the numbers of folks mobilizing in the north end they're they're not liking feeling like second class citizens i can assure you well what now how are those north enders mobilizing what's next for them well, they see the writing on the wall, right? I mean, it, you you did. I know you're having challenges getting Cooper or anybody from Hots on, and I don't think that's fair. He was on uh, after the meeting the other night, Good Morning Hamilton, with Rick, and and really just doubled down on how unacceptable it is that people get upset at what's gone on here. It's not even so much again as the concept. It's the it's the manner in which they've played this out. It's completely lacked transparency, and it was unfair with respect to uh, giving anyone the ability who lives there to, to 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 talk about it before a vote was was made so what goes on now is i think they should probably get the message that they should go back to the drawing board and i think personally go back to my council days go back to your original plan this is a bait and switch they sold this concept on the fact that we understand that something like this causes impacts that's why we're going to do the kitchener model we're going to put our 25 sheds for our houseless individuals high acuity individuals in an area away from residential and even commercial just like kitchener and everyone went that sounds great let's support you and then with about a year to go in the last term they chose mcdonald high school and you saw the upset in the community that that the, the counselor had to defend that went away it was it was ill-conceived and it wasn't well organized at all they did a community consultation where they got 50 people 48 were their activists slash anarchists 
quarters. And then they went on Barton Street, and the same thing happened. A whole lot of pushback. When are they going to learn that it might be a real good idea to do that engagement that you promised, just like the Kitchener model, ahead of time and ahead of a, a vote? Instead, they double down and decide, oh, we'll pull a fast one on the community. And they're learning their lesson. And that, that meeting, I mean, I had several people reporting as it happened. Some were shooting videos. They lock out more than half of the people. They choose the worst location. It was way too small, given just a few weeks ago the other location they had was too small. You got a counselor and a mayor. God love Andrea, nice lady and everything. But you got to show up. They weren't even at the meeting, and now they're commenting about how it was violent. They weren't even there, and maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if our mayor stood up in front of the room saying, hey, you folks, you two people over there that are getting loud, you got to cool it. And plus, what's wrong with getting loud? You're in the North End. And you've created this terrible scenario. And she's been loud as an NDP leader for over a decade. I mean, getting loud in politics is just part of the game. And why is that suddenly considered something nasty or violent? That's just silliness. And it's just an excuse. I think it's just some sort of preordained or preplanned uh, uh, attempt at creating a scenario of public meetings that are just going to be online with 10 people and we'll do a whole bunch of this and that and I'm telling you and here's a scoop for you the residents aren't going to go for that so now on Sunday there's a bunch of us meeting they're going to hold their own meeting they're going to invite the mayor they're going to invite the council they're going to invite all the city staff they're going to invite hats it'll be their meeting and it'll be up to all of these folks to show up or not and they should definitely consider showing up before they put one shed down on this beautiful piece of property in their neighborhood when will we find out more about this meeting jason i'll let you know monday i'll shoot you i'll shoot back okay. a text as long as he stops with the hairband stuff all right, all right. Okay, I got to ask you one more question. We're really short of sure. time here. You talked about the Green Belt. You were a city councillor for years. Uh, the right. one thing about the Green Belt debate, it has brought to everyone's attention that 20 to 40 years, which we've all talked about with experts that are there, that so you don't have to bite into the Green Belt, but yet nothing has been developed on those 20, on that 20 to 40 years alternative land either. Why have homes not been built on that alternative land till now? If now. Well, I, I, you're, that's a whole other 10 minute segment. But in my down, in the downtown when I was the counselor, most of what you see now with the cranes that are present and the cranes that were present in the last six, seven years, that's brownfield development. That's, that's building residential, mostly condos and, and obviously, uh, apartment buildings, uh, within the city boundary, without, the, within the urban growth district. Why it hasn't happened? I've listened to your show all afternoon. You've been on fire. Uh, it's comical in a sad way uh what you're pointing out i completely agree with you way late to the table and and it's it's beyond ironic and certainly in this city and, and a lot of other cities it should have happened uh a lot faster with programs and the incentives and all the things he's talking about now they should have been in place like you've said many times on your program years and years ago the trick to being a good leader is to get ahead of issues not re- react and especially given the polling right now that's it's so obvious what's going on and you pointed that out obviously scott throughout the day so sorry i can't give you a better answer but there's been a lot of brownfield redevelopment in the city of hamilton that's added to our numbers and our provincial growth targets but uh, certainly we had an expanded urban boundary as suggested by staff before that was changed that included the green belt because we 
you know, you want not only want to build houses, Scott, but you want to build with the product that people are going to buy and that they want to buy as well, right? All right, Jason, i got to cut you off there. We're completely out of time. Former counselor for Ward 2, City of Hamilton, and you can still hear the passion. Jason Farr with us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Trudeau liberals are meeting in London, Ontario for frank talks with their boss, whatever that means. Let's bring in Tasha Carrot and journalist writer with the National Post and Substack page, in my opinion, author of The Right Path. With us now, Tasha, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Scott. Yes, you too, I hope. I was listening to the Prime Minister today, and I honestly, I, I didn't know who I was listening to because I've never heard him utter these words in my entire life. How does a man spin on a dime like that and all of a sudden realize that there's a crisis that we've all known about for decades? Have you seen their poll numbers lately? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that it's a sign that the Liberals are realize that they've been outgunned on this issue. They've been uh, ignoring it. It is the number one issue for Canadians is cost of living and housing in particular. And they are going to come to this party, even if they're late, to try and turn things around because nothing else has worked to move the needle. Uh, there was a cabinet shuffle. Um, the prime minister called the public inquiry into foreign interference. Uh, you know, he uh, tried to sort of, I guess, just change the channel on a lot of things and nothing has worked. So I think they're finally realizing, well, maybe we should address the actual elephant in the room, which is that people can't afford a place to live and double down on that to take the wind out of the conservative sales. We'll see if it works. Uh, we've heard that you know one of their strategies or their strategies uh, the people saying and they're speaking off uh, you know off record so you don't know how much of this is true and, and and how much of it is is fabricated but they say that they're not spending enough time attacking Pierre Polyev that that you know they've let him establish a ground here they haven't attacked him and the other problem is is they're not getting their it's a communication strategy they're not they're not communicating how great they've done and you know you can say what you want about the prime minister but one of the things he's very very good at is schmoozing uh, charisma and communicating and selling the message um, th that's what he does best so uh, can you win this election by just chopping up the opposition again and fear-mongering well when's the election that's a big question i think that the liberals um, best ally is time because they need time to either get a new leader and have that person establish themselves or try and fix things. Try, hope the economy turns around, throw everything at the, at the issues that are there, try and scoop the conservatives. It's kind of like the NDP. You know, the NDP always crows about, we need to do this, we need to do that. And then the liberals get the credit for doing it. Remains to be seen whether what they're doing is actually going to make a difference, though. Uh, you know, if they, if they drag out this mandate another two years, at that point, will people still be talking about housing or inflation or interest rates? We don't know. Um, and there's only so much they can actually do in that span of time, especially on housing. It takes a while to actually build homes. Um, but uh, they're certainly going to try because, frankly, like I said, nothing else is working. Um, any expert I've talked to has said the housing issue, uh, somebody said a few weeks ago, it's the hottest issue in politics right now. Well, it's going to be for quite a while. It took us 5, mm -hmm. 10, 15 years to get into this. It's going to take us that long to get out of this. Uh, that being said, what does the prime minister do to turn this around? Because basically he's gone into a phone booth and spun around and come out in a different costume. And now he's <laughs> asking us to believe this. 
is this going to resonate, Tasha? Well, I, you know, I think that you're right on what you said earlier, which is that they they have allowed Pierre Polyev to define himself. I think that they what they sort of thought was. His numbers are low. Uh, you know, women don't like him. The sort of the stuff that people were saying before the summer. And that was true. Um, numbers were low and women didn't poll favorably. And then I think what's shifted is the sense that there's, you know, first there's fatigue with Trudeau himself. But there's also the sense that um, no one's listening. And the conservatives tapped into that at their convention. Very clever. And making this bridge from, you know, Trudeau didn't listen to the convoy, which the liberals hope would be an albatross around the, the, the conservative's neck. Yeah. They spun it to, he didn't listen to them, and now he's not listening to you. So it's about this theme of the government being out of touch, and I think that does resonate with people who are frustrated, you know, and they see, you know, Trudeau gets stuck in India and stuff, and, like, nothing's going right for him, and this guy's just not, he's not even here. He's not, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that is partly why people are they're just they're looking for change and change elections are hard they're hard to fight against unless there's something really new in the window i don't see how people are going to get any more mellow over the next two years i I really don't see that tasha um we keep talking about the leadership issue and people say oh no everybody that's there is was there because trudeau and uh, they're never going to turn the back and da 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 but does he sit back over two years and literally let this party drive into the ground he's taking this once a very, very dignified center-left party, and he's driving it to the extreme left. And yet, while he's doing that, he's commenting about how bad the far right is. Well, here's the thing. Um, I, I really do think that the liberals, it's either they they fix things, they turn things around, or things turn around on their own nature, like the economy, and then the conservatives have less to talk about. Or they go whole fear factor. Um, you know, if Donald Trump gets the Republican nomination in the United States, as people expect he will, unless he's in jail, um, and potentially becomes president, that would be something they would then spin out and say, you know, who do you want to stand against him? Who, who do you want this kind of thing up in Canada? Like the fear factor, they will play on that. They're already trying to play on that. Um, but I don't think, I don't know if it's going to work this time. I think governments are their best before date. I mean, look, Everyone loved Justin Trudeau. They loved him and his wife and his family. All in 2015, they could do no wrong. I looked at Pierre Polyev on the convention stage with his with his wife, who's lovely, and you know gave her speech and all this. And I thought, yeah, in eight years, everyone's going to hate you guys too. Like there's a, <laughs> there's a fatigue thing. I hate to say it. There's a fatigue thing that sets in. People get yep. sick of you, and you make a couple of mistakes, and then the things just start snowballing and. Yeah, and so this is, you know, now it's Trudeau's turn to be on the outs, like Harper after nine years as well. People want to see the back of him. They just do. It just seems that the liberals, whenever they get in trouble, they pull out the same songbook. It's the fear mongering over, oh, we got to watch the U.S., or it's an abortion issue, or it's handguns, or it's, you know, like, I mean, have, maybe just because I'm older, but we've all heard this so many times. Is this new to anybody? No, it's not, it's not new. I think that, um, what it's just you run at a runway at a certain point right and and i think that's really that's where they are at um and the chinese interference thing has not helped because it you know even though it's not the top issue it's kind of like a bit of a drumbeat in the back it's like it's an ethics issue it's an integrity issue it's a trust issue who do you trust to have your back who do you trust to care who do you so that's partly the problem is that people i think look and say well Trudeau's big thing was people trusted him during the pandemic. Don't forget, 
people trusted the government to help them. It supported them. And now they feel, well, you've let us down. You're not there for us anymore. You don't care, right? Does everybody everybody forget? Has everybody forgot that Canadians vote left? Then they vote right. Then they vote left. Then they vote right. Then they vote left. Then they vote right. To keep us in the center. Like, everybody's thinking, like, their party's the only one that can ever govern. Well, they've drifted away from the center. Both parties have drifted away from the center. There is no center party anymore. Yeah. The, yeah. The, uh, the conservatives have moved to, to the further right on certain issues, issues that don't necessarily resonate as much, like the, the vaccine mandates and all that, you know, wacko stuff that they have around the WEF and all that. That's far right wacko. They didn't talk about that at the convention. There was no WEF that I heard mentioned. Interesting. Um, but the liberals have definitely gone hard left, to your point. Uh, and they've embraced woke culture to an extent that now the pendulum is swinging the other way. People are kind of fed up with a lot of stuff and saying, you know, you know, we're all for, for inclusion and we're all for fairness, but this is not fair. This is cancel culture. This is crazy. We don't like this. Bingo. Tasha Kieran with us, journalist, writer for the National Post, uh, G Zero Media and Substack page, in my opinion, author of The Right Path. Tasha, as always, fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. 14.2, 14.2% tax increase suggests uh, uh, city staff in order to just keep uh, Hamilton where it is right now. Yeah. That's going to go over well, isn't it? Yeah, and I talked to a few counselors today who said, uh, oh, but don't, don't worry because they're not done spending yet. There will be more things added to that. So whatever they whittle down... There's going to be having to be even more whittling to get it down because there, there's a couple of counselors who have said to me, I'm, we're not really confident that there's not going to be more put on the table. So, you know what? Uh, I would say that it's an outrage. It's an outrage. It's outrageous that we would consider a, a tax increase of that much for a lot of people in town. That's well over $1,000 on your tax bill. Um but you know what? Until this council shows that it gives some kind of a flying whoop, um, you know what? Well, what do you do? I mean, and we're there's three more budgets to come with this group. So, and, and the, the the staff has said next year's before anything gets added. Remember, this is the starting point. Is expected to be six point one. The year after five point nine. So if you live in Hamilton, and if nothing goes different from what the staff report is telling you it probably will look like, this council will have raised your taxes by 30%, by a third, pardon me, over the course of one term. Hmm. Uh, yeah. All right. Um. But can we talk about something else for a second to do with <laughs> yeah, this council? Ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Something dawned on me today, and uh, I should have thought of this earlier, but... That meeting, that that tiny homes yeah. meeting that was canceled yeah. the other day, and there's a meeting scheduled. There was a meeting scheduled for tomorrow, a public meeting, and then in, for in Ward Two, and it has now been put off or it's done online or there's no people going to be there because they say, oh, you know what? There's too many threats. There's too much possibility of violence and angry people. And all I could think was, wait a second, the reason so many of the people who are in the North End are worried and angry is because they say many of these encampments and things are dangerous. So how is it that a meeting where there is one or two yelling, angry people creates a situation that is too dangerous for staff and counselors to attend, but it's fine 
for residents to have dangerous people in some cases in their neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. That, I've got I've got several notes like that. Too. Really, yeah. it's just like yeah. it makes. Yeah. I, I thought I should have thought of it. Earlier. It makes it, it's so. I don't know if the word is hypocritical, but if if you're if it's too dang, if someone yelling at you is too dangerous for you to set foot in the building or have public consultation, maybe that should be some sort of sign to you that they have a case because people are being yelled at and other stuff. We just had another shooting the other day. This yeah. is going on. Uh, it's it's th- this council right now. I got to tell you, this council, as it speaks right now, is not bathing itself in glory, Scott. It really is not. Um, how do you compare it to past situations? I, I'm reading one note. This is terrible. This is it's like, well, it's it, when has it not been like this? Well, that's true. So, I mean, anyone who remembers this time last year, there was this groundswell that said uh, the current council we have is horrible. We got to get rid of them all. And we had 10 of them either leave or get voted out. And this was going to be the refreshing yeah. breath yeah. of fresh air. If anyone is sniffing a breath of fresh air right now, I'd like to know who it is because I don't get a sense that everyone is feeling overwhelmingly chipper about the new council. It's just we've moved from one to another. And and I'm not saying, as I did last time, I'm not saying all councillors are bad. I think there are some good councillors. There were mm-hmm. and there are. But there's enough of the other ones that you look at and you go, I just don't see how we're better today. Maybe council has less yelling. Maybe you have somebody or a couple people who are less annoying. But uh, are we really, as a city, are we feeling like we're really heading towards that glorious sunrise that a new council was supposed to cause us to? Or are we just all on the left? Well, uh, Where, where's the center, Scott? The center is gone. We're fighting these battles in the extremes. You know, we've got two always, people we're chatting who are center people, whether it's center right, center left. The Liberal Party was the great left of center party. The prime minister's driven it to the far left. It, it seems we're trying to solve these mammoth issues on the fringes. Yes, we always and are. They're the, and they're the least qualified. And, and everybody is mad about something. I, 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 this is totally sort of semi-off topic, but I saw that tweet that came out the other day or yesterday by Jan Arden, who was upset that Pierre Polyev got the microphone on a oh, plane of man. conservative supporters and now says oh, she's going to boycott. Man. And all I could think was, you must have really hated the last scene in The Wedding Singer. Because if someone talking who's not a staff person on a plane causes you this much much angst and anger and rage, like okay, so a guy got can on the plane. Can we get any more? Can we get any more woke socialism here? But I mean, it's not honestly, even woke. it's just it's so puerile. It's so small. It's puerile. If it look, if someone that I don't agree with gets on a microphone on a plane and talks for thirty seconds, is my life really ruined? Have I really been damaged, or could I just have said, okay, you talked, that's good for you. I ignored it. I don't agree with you. On we go with our life. Do I need to go on social media and go? This is an outrage. I demand this company be shut down immediately. Immediately because this person was allowed to speak 25 words. Give me a break. Why does everything have to lead to someone being outraged and have to put it all over social media and demand that the cause of this or the person behind it or the company behind it be immediately boycotted and shut down? Why? Whatever happened, Scott, and this, we're out of time. Whatever happened to sticks and stones may break <laughs> my bones. That was the good times when you actually yeah. were expected to be able to have some thick skin, some rhino skin occasionally go, you know, I didn't like that, 
but who cares? I didn't. I don't have to like everything. It's okay. We, we live in a world of extremes. Thank you, Scott. And the discussion continues after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.